Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the actor and writer Christian Patterson. Hi Christian, how's things? Hello Kieran, yeah I'm alright, how are you? I'm good, so, so we're both in Nithalbert and we're both in Wales generally. So we've both yeah. been plunged into first of all the local lockdown a couple of weeks ago, the last being usurped by this national lockdown. Um, so you still get used to it? It's like you've just got to go with the flow, I think. I think you have got to go with the flow, really, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I did enjoy, um, to a certain extent, the first time we ever went into the big lockdown yeah. back in March. Um, because I work away a lot, and touch wood, we, I hope when we come out of, um, this pandemic that I work away a lot again, but who knows? Um, but because I work away a lot, uh, I kind of enjoyed being home with Michelle, Dylan, and the dog because yeah. it was it felt new to me, really, to be honest with you. Uh, and then as that sort of went on and on and on, the concerns about um, right, is it, uh, when are theatre is going to reopen? When are things going to start happening again? when will I be able to do something on stage yeah. again? All those sorts of things started to rear their ugly heads. And then things started to get cancelled, you know, like the theatre job that I was going to do up in Stoke, the Regent Theatre. Yeah. Uh, also, I was going to direct 39 Steps for the Torch Theatre. That got yeah. cancelled. And um, I wrote Beauty and the Beast for Theatre Lloyd. That got cancelled. And then later, um, Tamara rang me and said, do you think you could write a one-act fun show for us that's got panto elements? So I yeah. did that. So this second lockdown now I found it more weird really when, and I wonder if this is the same with you Kieran, but I found it more weird when we were in area lockdown than yeah. when we were in national lockdown because it feels like we're all in the same boat now It was weird, wasn't it, because Swansea was locked down at one stage Bridgend was locked down and then we were in the middle and we were the only county in Wales that wasn't locked down. So we, we were kind of locked down by proxy, almost. That's we... exactly what I was saying to people. Those words, exactly, because people were saying to me, oh, you're in lockdown. And I'm going, well, by proxy, because, you know, we're basically surrounded. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it was inevitable then, I suppose, that we were going to lockdown as well. But there's something easier, I think, about us all being in it together. Yeah. Um, little individual areas, you know, I... I do feel for the areas, especially the areas way up north, that this, you know, that's going into lockdown, then that's going into lockdown, then that's going into lockdown. And I kind of think it must be, the longer it goes on, it must be very difficult to think, well, my neighbours 
in the neighbouring county can can do yeah. a lot more than I can, you know. Yes, uh, and it's that thing why why they under these rules why we uh, it breeds jealousy and uh, as you say we're not all in this together as you know it felt like we were in March and April but I guess we'll just have to see how it pans out I guess. exactly I mean it's going to do what it's going to do and it's going to take as long yeah. as, as it's going to I was just watching the news now and listening about that um, that 12 minute test they've got in in Boots and I was filming in Budapest re- recently um, and we had to have um, a number of um, COVID tests I had to have a COVID test here before I could fly out yeah. there and then I had four COVID tests when I was out there the day before filming, and then a COVID test before flying back. So I've had six ne- negative COVID tests. <laughs> one of the ones that I did have was this rapid one, this very, very quick, and the results were back in 10 minutes. No, certainly no longer than 15 wow. minutes. And, you know, that's a real game changer, because if you can go out confident that everyone that you're seeing has had this test and is able to have this test, if they're able to roll them out, as the government is saying, mind you, I don't trust the government, but I trust the Welsh government, but not national not government. Not the UK government. But, but um, um, you know, if you can roll those out, it's a real game changer. Definitely, and hopefully we can see that come in maybe before the end of the year or early next year. Yeah. to get us back to a semblance of normality, even if yeah. we don't have a vaccine. We but, really talk with one voice here, right? Because that's the other thing I've been saying. I've been saying we need to get back to a semblance of normality. Obvious. So I feel like I feel like you and I are sharing the same brain. Oh, obviously, like there's people who are at risk and they need to be protected. And as long as we can ensure that they are protected, like my grandparents or people who are vulnerable, yeah, you know, then surely there's a way for the rest of us. To, yeah, to yeah. To I guess I also, anyway. So where I wanted to start uh, was I wanted to ask you was how how did you first get interested in theatre? Well, um, weirdly, I suppose my first ever trip to theatre um, was what I I really love and I'm very passionate about doing um, and have been for the last fifteen years, and that was panto. Swansea Grand, but I'm talking back in the days, you know. I'm not ancient, but was it Ryan and Ronnie day? Well, it wasn't. Um, it was, I remember Ryan being in it, I don't remember Ronnie being in it, but but I was only about five, um, when I first went to the Grand. And the Grand in those days, the seats upstairs were pretty much benches, right? Uh, and the entrance to get upstairs wasn't inside the building, so you went and got your ticket and then you walked outside and you walked round and round and round this sort of tower thing to get to the seats upstairs and I remember it being bitterly cold because it was winter and I don't think there was any heating up there anyway Um, but I remember I do remember thinking it was a really magical world and it's one of the things that has never left me when I walk into a theatre I I generally get this buzz of excitement Um, it whether I'm working there or whether I'm going to see something, it still means a great deal to me. And from that then, my grandparents um, that brought me up, they were very um, supportive of any sort of thing and hobby I wanted to do. And my grandmother took me to the the old 
uh, South Wales Evening Post Banqueting Hall. Um, went, uh, I went to see my cousins in dance competitions, and they did ballroom and Latin. Mm. And my grandmother said to me, would you like to do this? And I said, yes. So I started ballroom and Latin dance at the age of five and finished when I was 12. Right. Um, and I would not have finished had I not outgrown my dance partner. Um, you know, I was I was six foot by the time I was 12. You know, it was wow. ridiculous. And, um, and Amanda hadn't uh, grown very much at all. And I didn't want to dance with him in so So I finished them, but... Then from that, I guess it was school productions. Yeah. Um, the drama was taught pretty abysmally, really, in in the first three years of my secondary um, schooling because it was normally done by the maths teacher, the games teacher. There wasn't a drama teacher. Yeah. It was whoever was available. Was it seen as a subject that wasn't really a serious subject? <laughs> it was serious. It wasn't it wasn't taken seriously at all. You know, and it was it was rubbish. It was absolutely rubbish. And then. When we got to um, the year three to five of my uh, comprehensive education up in Pontadawi, yeah. a drama teacher joined in the fourth year called Denise Cavalli, and she had a massive influence in my life because she could see that, you know, for whatever reason, I could do what she would give me to do. You yeah. know, she'd say, Can you ever read this? Can you learn this? Can you do that? And she broke this world open to me. So really, I would say my start was, thanks to my grandparents, and in particular my grandmother, um, it was Borum and Latin dance, first of all. Um, and then it was Denise Cavalli joining the, the school that really set the fuse alight. And when did you start thinking, this is what I want to do as a career? Oh, it was so shortly after Denise joined, really. I felt like... I felt like somebody had given me a key to yeah. unlock something. I felt like, oh, this is it. Because, you know, the majority of subjects that I was doing, I was having to do it because we all have to take, you know, choices in terms of I was the first ever year at GCSE. So, you know, you've got okay. to do your maths, your English, and you, you choose, and you, your sciences and your languages. And there's a few subjects that you can choose. And I didn't choose drama because um, it was just so badly taught. And then when Denise arrived, I, I said, look, I wanted to do drama. And so I did my drama uh, GCSE with much less time than <clears throat> was officially given to do. But, you know, it, it literally felt like someone had opened my eyes to something. And I thought, this is it. This is what I want to yeah. do. And every other subject here <laughs> <has> suffered. <laughs> when, you, when you couldn't find me, I was in the drama <laughs> studio. <laughs> And you went to you went to the Welsh College of Music and Drama. I did, yeah. How how was that, and how did that prepare you for your career in the industry? Then? Well, from um, um, theatre com uh, theatre sorry, uh, that's what I used to work when I was younger. But from um, Comtari Comprehensive, um, I went to Gosainan College first. Right. Uh, there were a lot of teachers there that I had a lot of respect for. People like um, Simon Perrot, David Lloyd Jones, uh, Ross Taylor, Ruth Prosser, um, uh, Nikki Williams. You know, they were they were phenomenally and John Quirk was a big influence as well. They were phenomenally supportive and uh, and they weren't frightened to tell you 
what you could do well and what you did badly and where you could improve and stuff. And I guess Simon Perrault used to say to me, gosh, you're like a sponge, you know, I can give you a bit of direction and you can do it straight, you can do it straight away. But to me, it felt natural that, that someone would say, try it like this. And it felt natural and playful enough for me to go, yeah, okay, I'll have a go. Mm. And then from there, I progressed to um, the Welsh College of Music and Drama, Royal Welsh College as it is now. Um, nothing so fancy when I was there. Um, <laughs> um, but that, I met um, three or four in particular uh, tutors there that sort of really, really changed my life in, in the same way, really, as Denise did. And that was Andrew Neil, um, Marilyn LeConte, who taught us voice and radio. Um, Peter Doran, who was <clears throat> just one of my, it, it, even to this day, I, I I really thank Peter for everything that he did for me in those early years and has done since, because I've worked with him since yeah. as an actor, because he's brilliant at um, just making the world that you inhabit in a drama plausible to you, you know? Right. Um, and I would say then Hilary Beckett was the other the other person. She was a voice tutor. And these those four people in particular prepared me for the business. But I was one of those people when I was at Welsh College. There were a lot of people in my year because there was two parts of the year. There was a performance course and a degree course. And I did the degree course purely because that meant that I could get funding. What was the difference? It was, so basically, if you did the degree, it was a mandatory grant. And right. um, if you did the performer's course, um, it, you know, it was discretionary. So they were exactly the same course, apart from the fact okay. that with the degree course, you had to do um, exams, you know, uh, <clears throat> which is not something that I was really interested in. But, you know, I didn't want a chance not being able to go because I couldn't get the grant. Yeah. So uh, when I when I went to Welsh College, um, they spent the first year sort of stripping you down of all your bad habits. They spent the second year building you up with all fresh good habits and making you realise who you are as a performer, not pretending to be somebody else or pretend to sound like mm -hmm. somebody else. And then the third year was all about performance. So we did about eight performances in the, wow. in the third year. Um, and in the third it was when I found another skill, really. I mean, singing was something that um, I thought I should do um, because majority of shows, I was the, I was one of the people in the college that read the stage and I'd look reviews, what was going on and yeah. things. And um, uh, a lot of the shows in the West End were musicals. And I thought, well, I better start to sing. I better start to learn to sing then. So I auditioned for a scholarship and got a singing scholarship. And then in the third year, I did... My, I did musicals with Denise, but I did my first musical at Welsh College, and it was uh, Cabaret. And I played, I shared the role of the MC, so one night I would yeah. do it, and then uh, a guy called Jason Bourne, not not the action no, hero, no. <laughs> he, he would do it the next night. Um, and that that to me was the the production. Um, that is a difficult show as well. That's a heavy show. Oh. Well, it is. It really is. And and Andrew Neil, the, the who directed it, said, "I want you to be a, a a an actual MC. So you know, if something happens in the audience, all the audience <clears throat> in the 
foreground were on tables and chairs and there were working bars at either side of the set so they yeah. could get up and have a drink and everything. It was a fabulous production. And then there was standard seating towards the back. Um, and he said, if something happens, if something funny happens, I want you to respond to it mm. as an MC would. And he'd say to me, make up jokes, you know, make up jokes, entertain the audience, get them on your side. So that at the end, when it turns out that, you know, you've brought down the, the destruction mm. of um, Sally Bowles and all those yeah. sorts of people, because you've laughed and smiled all the way through the show, when you continue to laugh and smile at that part is when people realise, oh, he's, he's actually not mm. a nice bloke. Um, yeah, it, Welsh College was an interesting time for me. I, I, I really did enjoy it. Yeah. And coming out to drama school, um, what, how did you find breaking into industry? It's terrifying. Mm. I thought even Welsh College was an absolutely terrifying prospect. There seemed to be quite a lot of people, um, there were 30 of us in total between the two parts of my year, you know, the performance and the degree. And there seemed to be an awful lot of people, I think, who were more convinced than me that they would go out and immediately start working in the business. Um, yeah. And I was terrified. As I came towards the end of the third year, I was thinking, I've, I've made a massive mistake. I, you know, I, I what what I want to do could see me rejected and unemployed a lot. And it's yeah. a very hard thing to take. And, you know, I think there's some actors who will say, you know, um, oh, you're tough enough to rejection. And I think you do to a certain extent, but there's still that little tiny bit of you that's in the pit of your stomach that when you get a call to hear it hasn't gone your way, you still suffer slightly. Yeah. I don't believe that anyone doesn't suffer. It must be something in your body that goes, oh, my no, you know, I wanted that job. Or, anyway, it does with me. But when I left college, I left with a job, um, and that was right next door in the Mews in Cardiff with a company uh, that were producing open-air Shakespeare. Okay. Um, and I did that job, and then everyone was moving to London, so I thought, well, I better do that then. Not really wanting to, but I thought, well, I best do that then. And then I moved to London, and I lived in London... Uh, for about two years and every job that I got was outside of London <laughs> ironically um, but I was very lucky by the end of the year um, Paul Kerrison who used to be the artistic director of the uh, Leicester Haymarket Theatre right. offered me a job in his production of Guys and Dolls which I did at the Leicester Haymarket and then toured up to Edinburgh and from that work sort of snowballed you know um, and I was very lucky. And then in 1997, um, I met a man who really, um, kind of instrumental really, he passed away earlier this year, which is why it's slightly choking me, but he was kind of instrumental really in picking me up as a young performer and turning me into the performer that, that I am today really, and that was Terry Hands. Right. Um, he had seen me on a wet Wednesday afternoon at Swansea Grand doing a matinee of The Rape of the Fair Country, right. Alexander Cordell, directed by um, Tim Baker, um, adapted by Manon Eames. Manon Eames was the guest on the last episode. Oh, well, there you go. Manon, Manon did the adaptation. Oh, wow. Very good friend of Manon's. It's, this world is very, very <laughs> You know what I mean? Um, and um, I came out of the bar 
Uh, and there was Terry Hans. And I couldn't believe it. And he, he, he mouthed over to me and winked over it. And he mouthed over and said, wonderful, wonderful. And I thought, oh, that's it. I've had an affirmation of the God of the <laughs> And I went back to the Leicester Haymarket again to do a play called Two Weeks with the Queen, a play by Morris Blightsman, yeah. which is really directed by um, the man that played um, Nathan Detroit in the production of uh, wow. Night Dog that I did, a man called Peter Forbes. And it was during rehearsals for that that I got a call from my agent to say, Terry Hams wants you to come up and do uh, his first ever rep season. This is 97. Right. Um, it's first ever rep season at the Theatre Colloid. Um, would you like to do it? And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> of course I want to do yeah. it. You know, she said there's going to be ten productions on. You you will be uh, in. So basically, there were four productions. Uh, sorry, three productions in the main house, three productions in the uh, studio. Then there was a Christmas production in the main house and a Christmas production in the studio, and then there was a, a touring show as well. Okay. So. I was in four of them. I was in the three main house shows and then I was in the Christmas show. And to me, it was like proper, proper learning your craft. Yeah. Proper learning. High, high intensity, high pressure, lots to do in a short amount of time. Absolutely. And, you know, you'd rehearse Rip the Fair Country um, from 9 to 12. Yeah. And then you'd have lunch between 12 and 1. And then between 1 and 4, you were with. Terry rehearsing Equus. Was it difficult know? to get into the, those different headspaces? Get into, get gone. In, in, well, yeah, from role to role, not so much for me and Equus because I played a horse. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I tell you, I loved doing that because it was the first time ever that I felt, I, I felt what it must be like to to be a rock star because we were all mm. in white. We had this silver horses heads you could see through to our eyes and we had horses hooves on and um there was a point where when he mentioned the horses these sliders opened in really slow motion with this weird music and all together the horses slammed one hoof on the stage mm. and the stage was um miked so it made this almighty noise yeah i just thought ah wait a minute i may just be in the coolest thing in the world here <laughs> <laughs> yeah terry terry was a dear friend, and um, and yeah, he Terry took up the training from um, Marilyn, Peter, um, Andrew, and Hillary, and he turned mm. me into the actor that I am now. I think. That's a lovely tribute, Christian. Uh, I'd like to ask you about uh, play called Goon Bandage, which was about the life of how you seek him, and you played the lead role. And in terms of your preparation and your process, really, because you're playing someone who actually existed, so was your process different to, say, if you were playing a fictional character? Yeah, it is. I think it's... Um, because with fictional uh, characters, you can um, make up fictional answers in your brain. Yeah. Um, when they're real-life breathing characters, I think you've got the extra responsibility of um, listening to everything that you can listen to, any interview you can listen to, um, reading the books that they've said, talking to people that knew them. Um, and I, I think, you know, you don't 
go out to give an impression as such. Right. You go out to give a fully rounded picture that, you know, even people that knew him very, very well would go, oh, that was, it was Harry, that was Harry, that was Harry. And one night when I did it, because I co-wrote that with a um, um, very good actress uh, and writer friend of mine called Helen Griffin. Right. I played Harry before up in the West Yorkshire playoffs in a play called Year and Tom. And then we took that to the West End and that closed. And, uh, and I thought, well, I've got all this knowledge of the character mm. and stuff. You know, I want to do a one woman, uh, one woman, one man show, right? <laughs> Not a one woman show, because uh, I don't know if Harry Seacombe ever did that. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, myself, um, Phil Clark, and um, Helen Griffin uh, went to see, um, oh God, what's her name now? Her name's gone out Sybil Crouch at right. the um, Taliesin. And, you know, we told her why we thought we should do it. And she opened a diary and went, right, okay, when are we doing it? <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so wow. I had to write it, but it is a big responsibility. He's not the only character that I've played that is um, real life. I've also played Oliver Hardy, right. and I've played a couple of others as well. But they have to become a labour of love. And I think if you don't have genuine affection for the person that you are um, playing, even if that person is, you know. A Roman, a bad guy. Mm. There's got to be something in that that you could draw a line of empathy with. Whether it was, look, for example, watching um, that brilliant, brilliant performance that David Tennant gave in in Des about um, the, yes. the serial killer. Um, oh God, his name's gone out of my brain. Des Dennis oh, Nielsen. That's it. Yeah. Yes. You know, I'm not saying that he has to love him. He doesn't have to love him because you know. But the the line of empathy, if it had been me, was to see just how lonely he was, you know. Yes. And, that, and that, that that line, what he did was completely evil. But that line of empathy to find that strand of empathy. Well, it's easy with people like um, Harry Seacombe and Oliver Hardy yeah. because they're bright and they're they are very beautiful people. And mm. actually, the voice was pitched in a very similar place for the both of them as well, right. which is kind of weird. But yeah, that so, is yeah, it is a different process. I think it's more all-consuming for me if I'm playing somebody real. And if you've written the piece, if you've written, you know, about you, you wrote the Harry Seacombe piece, were you, were you conscious of it, or have got to be faithful, like I've got to give an accurate representation? Of this person. Um, no, I was. I definitely was. Um, and Helen, you know, Helen and myself, we did have disagreements in some of the writing mm. on it. And, um, and I think she, she, you know, she'd go, I understand where you're coming from. You, you, you know, you love his memory. You want to keep his memory yeah. really, really safe. And it was. It was from a deep, deep place of love and respect for Harry Seacombe. I think there are people in, in Swansea that sort of run down uh, Harry Seacombe, you know, think he's silly, the high voice singer and all this stuff, but actually, he was one of the goons. Yeah. He, he knighted um, for his um, services to entertainment, of his services to charity. To me, he was a legend. He was an absolute legend. And I met him. I met him at Welsh mm. College, and it was, it, it was the first time that I'd ever met a hero of mine, and, you know, mm. people say, don't meet your heroes, but you definitely should if they're like somebody you 
partner with Harry Seacombe, obviously he's passed away, mm. but you definitely should if there's somebody like Harry Seacombe because there's no way they can dispel um, or disturb the feeling that you have mm. for them. They're so warm and loving. Yeah. But one night when I was in performing in the um, Taliesin, the stage manager came down um, to say, um, five minutes before you go on, and then I used to go to stand side stage, and he said, uh, feeling all right tonight? And I went, yeah, 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 fine. He went, you sure everything's all right? And I went, yeah. I said, what's the matter? And he went, nothing, nothing, just checking, oh, just checking. God. And he came in afterwards and he said, there's 20 Seacombs waiting to see you in the bar. Oh. <laughs> 20 of the family members had come to see it. And what was their reaction to it? Oh, they were so lovely. They were so mm. lovely. Um, I mean, it really was a love letter to... Um, Harry Seacombe and to Spike Milligan in particular. Um, yeah. Peter Sellers did uh, appear in it, but um, but it was a, a love letter to those two in particular. So I think they were just really happy that, you know, I'd mm. made sure that a nice man came out like a nice man. Yeah. And it was very lucky with him. He was what you see, you know, Definitely. Definitely. Um, I'm going to move on slightly. I wonder if you could talk a bit about your writing process. Yes. Uh, and how did you start writing, first of all? Or is it something that you've always done? No, not really. I mean, I kind of, I've always written poetry, um, and I've always been interested in that. Um, the writing came because uh, I was doing pantomime with Johnny up at Stoke and Eric Potts used to write the scripts for us and they were they were excellent, they were always very, very good quality, but there was always something about it that, you know, I'd never met Eric when I did his first script. In fact, by the time I did his first two scripts, I'd never met him. And so there was always something where you go, Oh, what a shame, because I don't think he knows me very well because, you know, that I would probably do that as that character, yeah. or I would do this and you know, the thing with Panto that I try to avoid is writing a script and sending it out and going, um, this is the same script for eight different, you know, eight different venues. Okay. I can't do that. I like to make sure that every single person has, has their own because I like to write for a character and for a venue. Um, and so I'd say, you know, I'd say to Johnny, you know, I think there's a better line there. I think that would be funny, mm. you know. Uh, and that's quite literally how it started. When we came to the second year, when we did... Um, Sleep, no, not Sleeping Beauty, Snow White. When we did Snow White together, um, I was really taking chunks of the script away and going, let's say that instead, let's say that. Change that line okay. to that, change that yeah. line to that. And then within two years later, then I was writing the scripts. But the process of writing, because mm. I've written not only pantos now, but plays as well. Um, I think for me, it's quite different because when I talk to writers and you're a writer I know yeah. and when I talk to writers about it um, uh, they all are quite to a man really or to a person they say really that's how you do it and you go yeah so if I'm writing a panto uh, I may and this is on a rare occasion um, get some sticky notes and write act one scene one and what is a brief description yeah. realistically what I do is I think about um, the routines that are going to be in it, and then I put my fingers on the keyboard and start to write. 
I have no idea what's going to come out. No, no idea right. whatsoever. Um, and it's working for me so far, but, you know, I'm always aware that that might run dry one day. You know, I might put my fingers on the keyboard and go, I've got nothing. And um, I've experienced writer's block a couple of times, and it's horrible. If you've got a deadline approaching, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, but if you haven't and you can go, hey, I can walk away for it for however long I need to walk away for it, it's fine. But for me, it's not a simplistic thing, but it's about sitting down and just putting words on paper. And some of those words will go and some of those words will stay. Yeah. What your process as a writer? What's my process? I, I start with character. I, I guess it's a bit different for you when you're writing pantomime. But I, I start with character and I kind of think about who is this person, what do they want, what are they aiming to, what, what is their background, and I build up a picture of this character. And then yeah. once I've done that and I know basically what this character wants, what the protagonist wants, sometimes yeah. I write a one-page outline of the play um, and, and then I start writing and I see what happens. But yeah. I think what I found is I need that one page outline to have a basic structure. I think yeah. structure is really important for me. To have yeah, a yeah. structure of where the play is going. I don't yeah. necessarily need to have an ending, mm. but I need to know what the structure... Does that make sense? It makes total sense, because actually, weirdly... That's something else that <clears throat> I've started to do recently when I've got like an A4 page and I've this this person is like this, this happens at mm. this point, and blah blah blah. And um, I think for me, that A4 page, in a way, is a lot handier for me than the post-it notes. But the post-it notes is something that I, I, I um, sort of inherited off uh, Mamon Eames and Tim Baker. Um, but I'm always open to how other writers write their stuff because, you know, I don't think it's um, a unique process, but I do mm. think it's a unique talent. And, and I've, I've spoken to quite a lot of writers on this podcast. Yeah. And everyone has a different process, a different way yeah. of going about it. So everyone... Well, I want to listen to some of these, thank you, because I'd love to hear... Please feel I'm... free, yeah. Yeah, it's been really interesting to have these conversations. Yeah, brilliant. But, but about um, pantomime specifically, mm. is there a structure which every pantomime kind of fits into that you, as a writer, you have to write to that structure, or is it a bit more open than that? Um, I thought there was when I first started writing them, I thought, uh, well, I have to do this at this point, and I have to do that at that point, and I have to do that at that point. But I think I came of age as a pantomime writer when I wrote Peter Pan for Stone, because it was not a panto that Johnny and myself ever wanted to do, because I always say it's not a panto, it, it's it's play, you know, it's... it's um, and, I, and I find it... I've, we went to see a couple of productions of it, Johnny and myself, and I left going, it's just doesn't work, it just yeah. doesn't work as a panto, you know. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to the book, I'll read the book, and then I'll know 
what I'm about to ruin because I knew I was going to ruin the structure of it. <laughs> or I thought, you know, give J.M. Barry his dues. Yeah. I'll read what he's done and then I'll wreck it. And so it was after that point that I thought to myself, well, actually, any one of these characters can do whatever I want them to do. And what, you know, characters that meet that fall in love can meet and fall in love whenever I want them to. You know, it's, mm. it doesn't have to be a structure. And I tell you one thing, it's very freeing. And the first yeah. thing I did when, um, when I wrote Peter Pan was, because, you know, I, was, I never got the chance to play Peter Pan, but... Uh, I would have loved to. Never too late, Christian. Never too late. <laughs> I, you well, never know. I played, I played Captain Hofkinet. <laughs> and the very first thing I did was go, right, okay, I dress up as Peter Pan at some point. That's the first thing that I wrote down. So then to okay. trap Wendy, I dressed as Peter Pan and Tinkerbell came over to our side. She threw fairy dust at me. And I flew, and I was in this ridiculous costume, right? And I flew just six inches off the ground and pretended to be Peter Pan. And then I thought, well, if I pretend to be Peter Pan in the first half, I'll pretend to be Wendy in the second half and uh, to trick Peter Pan. So that's what yeah. I did. And I absolutely loved it. Because it was full of invention. Uh, that has, has a nice symmetry to it, which an audience would appreciate. Yeah. But, but how do you... How do you get away from being tethered to the source material? Being tethered to the story that you've got to... Because it's, it's not an adaptation, is it? No. Well, most of the stories are really thin, you know. Mm. I mean, when you think of the story, for example, of uh, Dick Whittington, right? Um, so, he goes to London to his fortune. Well, not, not if I'm writing it for Stoke, but I'm writing it for Mould. He goes to Mould to find his fortune. Yeah. He becomes the Lord Mayor of Mould, or he goes to Stoke and becomes the Lord Mayor of Stoke. But it's basically the story is man with cat travels to area, become rich, fights the rats, wins, becomes Lord Mayor. That, that's the story. So, so you go, as long as I've got all those elements in there, yeah. somewhere, that's all right. You can do whatever you want outside of that, as long as you hit yeah. those. Five story points. Yeah. You like can Cinderella. do whatever you want. Cinderella, um, daughter of Baron Harder. Um, Baron Harder has two stepdaughters, ugly sisters, horrible Cinderella. Um, they go to the ball. She doesn't go to the ball. Then she turns up at the ball, meets the prince. He falls in love. And whoever's foot fits this slipper will yeah. be my wife. There you go. Were you worried about that when you first started writing Pantomimes? Were you worried about the self-material and, and the stories? Yeah, I was. I think I was too loyal to other people's um, take on the story. I think I was like thinking, oh, well, you know, they'll want this part and they'll want that part. And, you know, that's really important and that's really important. But actually, when you go back to the basics and go, what is the structure? What is the basic structure of this story? Everything else, you know, is, is up to you whether or not you want to add it or not. You know, Cinderella, for example, in my, to my mind, has got to go to the ball and has got to lose her glass slipper. Yeah. Then the prince goes, whoever's foot fits this slipper, I'll marry. Turns up at the end and the ugly sisters try to put it on. Neither of them get their foot in there. Uh, there's always a uh, you know um, 
um, a joke about uh, I want to get my foot in the crystal slipper, you can get your foot in the crystal palace, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, if it's Cinderella, the ugly sisters get their um, comeuppance and it all ends, ends happily ever after. So those structure things, yeah, they are important, but around that, you can you can paint with any colour you want. Uh, that, that, that is really interesting. And you're, you're also um, very successful puzzling game. Um, again, in terms of characterization, I guess, is it the same for every pantomime, or does it vary depending on script? Is it is it a different experience in every? Yeah, yeah, it's different playing Widow Twanky to playing Sarah the Cook. Right. Uh, yeah, it's really different because they have their own individual personalities, and of course, I write them now, so I very much make sure that uh, they have their own personalities. But what I suppose the one thing they all share in common, my dames, um, well, two things really, uh, is that they're very motherly, very, right. very motherly, and um, it's a man in a dress, you know, it's mm. Les Dawson. I, you know, I'm okay. not, I'm not um, a drag artist, I'm not a drag queen, I don't possess that talent. When I go and see people who are drag queens, it's phenomenal what they do, mm. but you know, I don't possess that talent, so I don't do that. I'm a man in a dress. And I'm always at my best as a dame, in my opinion, when I'm Johnny's mother. Okay. So, uh, when we're mother and son, I, I'm, I'm at my best then. But having said that, um, I do genuinely think that Ugly Sisters are, are really different from all of the dames, and all of the dames have their own individual loveliness about them. So the last one that I played was um, uh, Fanny the Nanny in Sleeping Beauty, and she was klutzy, you know, she was ditzy, a bit mm. ditzy. Um, whereas Widow Twanky, she's out for what she can get. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas the cook is just desperate for food and a man. Do you know what I mean? Those, those are the things that mark them as different. So I always start from a different point of view with the character, but I always know that where I have to um, end up is I, I'm a man in a dress and I'm mumsy. So there's something different with all of them, but there are the similarities that you can't ignore. And you're playing into the audience's expectations, I guess. What do they want from you when they come to see you? And how do you deliver that? Would that be accurate? Yeah, they want me to be cheeky mm. and quite and as near to the line as I can get. <laughs> so that's what the audience, you know. Yeah. And now the audience are all thinking, oh, God, he's going to pick on me. And the mums in the audience think, I hope they pick on him. That, that's my engagement yeah. with them, you know? Like, for for example, this year, um, when we had, um, we used a camcorder at one point right. to look at people in the audience. We did kiss cam and wave cams. And we did little bubbles, speech bubbles that were coming out of their brain. Funny things, really, yeah. you know? Um, <clears throat> but I said, um, Johnny said, you know, oh, I want to find myself a wife. And I said, well, I'll tell you how we can do this. We can have a look at this audience, you know? And he said, well, they're not there. Yeah, it's like an episode of The Muppet Show and also. And I said, no, listen, I know where we can get a closer look. And he'd say, how? And I'd say, with my fanny cam. And he said, you what? And I said, my camcorder I had it for Christmas. Right? Now, I already know I've got the mums and dads because yeah. it's called fanny cam because it's my camcorder mm. and I'm, I'm fanny, the, fanny the nanny. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the, I know the audience are waiting for me to say something like that, the mums and dads. Yeah. But also I know that the dads are thinking, oh, God, please don't pick on me. Don't and all the yeah. are going, you, when I come on stage, I see a sea of women pointing to them, <laughs> you know, in, getting, you know. And it's lovely yeah. to think, don't worry, by the end of the night, you would have had a little chat with me or something, you know. And you mentioned that relationship with, oh, I forgot the name. Um, Johnny Wilkes. Johnny Wilkes. Um, how important is that relationship? Vital. Absolutely vital. Um, Johnny is, like, I said this actually the other night on a, on like a Zoom cast thing. Um, he's like the other half of my brain. He's right. like, he's literally like, you know, I can look at him and think he's going He's going to go off on one here. He's going to do something with the audience. And I'll just lock in my mind where we were in the point of the script. And then when he's finished, he'll come back and I'll pick it up. He'll do the same thing for me. Yeah. But because we genuinely love each other as people, um, you know, we holiday together and all that sort of oh, stuff. Wow. Um, I think that, that warmth that we share as uh, human beings, it really does flow over the... Uh, over the pit and into the audience and they know they know how well we get on but also there's other regulars that we've had there as well so Kai Owen for example who um, uh, a lot of people will remember from or recognise from uh, Torture and he was one of the leads in Torture right. and also he, more recently he was in um, Hollyoaks and things um, Kai's done five pantos with us then there's Simon Nian, uh, another very good friend of mine who lives in Llanelli he's done four pantos with us so we do have quite a lot of reoccurring people. Delmi Thomas, another um, a friend of mine who's from Tlesley, he's done two with us and would have been doing his third this year had coronavirus not hit, of course. But um, I think as soon as you find the right mechanism and the right thing to go, yeah, he can deliver that, he can deliver yeah. that, you can deliver that, and I can deliver that, it all clicks into place. And we've had two very, very good people, um, uh, Rebecca Lazeski and Amanda Coots. Um, and actually, I'd have to add Vivian Parry, though she's only done the one year with us as well. Um, we've had very, very good people come up and be goodies, baddies, or play Cinderella's yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm always in awe of these people because they are the real triple threat. They can okay. dance, sing, and act, and there's not a gap in those talents wow. where you go or you sing slightly better than you act, or you act slightly yeah. better than you sing. There's nothing in it. And they're phenomenally talented. I, I do envy those people. Like, you can just... Yeah. Do, do, I, I have yeah. a word for them. I call them gits. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, um, this year, um, obviously, there's not going to be a panther in the traditional sense, but you've written the panther that never was. Uh, can you just talk a little bit, bit about the project and how it's going to work, basically? Yeah, uh, so Tamara ran me with a very heavy heart and um, I knew from the moment that she said she went, hello mister, and I thought, right, we're cancelled. <laughs> I knew it straight away and she went, I've been dreading making this phone call, she said, but we can't do Beauty and the Beast, we're going to knock it on to... Uh, 2020, 21. And I said, yeah, I've been expecting this phone call, of course, you know. And she said, I don't know what we're going to do. We probably won't be open at all at Christmas. And then 
she said she had the idea of doing um, like Christmas carols and poems and mince pies that yeah. type of evening and then she just thought oh, do you know everyone needs just to have a, a good laugh you know so she rang me and she said if we can do a socially distanced panto on and off stage so all the characters on stage are socially distanced as well um, do you think you could write a one act show panto-esque um, that we could um, we could do and I could use there's normally ten people in the cast she's got six of them um, and I said well I'm sure I can write something so I came up with a title first on that one it was called um, uh, or it is called The Panto That Nearly Never Was and the first part of it um, takes place in Nearly Neverham, uh, Nearly Neverland where <laughs> nearly nothing never happens and then the second half takes place in nowhere so yes. it's like you know so it's uh, but it's it's written there's not a not a mention of covid in there there's not mention of the pandemic because let's just have an hour and 10 minutes Definitely. you know what i mean yeah um, but it's written from the point of view that the baddies have won and so there isn't going to be a pantomime no. you know they they yeah. won the day so then the baddie has this sort of for want of better words existential moment where she goes <laughs> well if there's no panto there's no me what am i doing here then yeah. and she starts to walk you know retrace go and meet these characters meets the dame the funny one mm. she meets the fairy and they they go off to meet um the wizard of panto and because north <laughs> wales is so close to um oswa street in yes. in uh, mine it's the wonderful wizard of oswa street <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah. and they then, you know, they meet various people via Zoom links and stuff as well. But um, it's a fun piece. It's a really fun piece. I say it's about an hour and ten minutes. It encapsulates all that, that is good about Panto. And also, um, the Panto Ecloid is, is a traditional rock and roll Panto. Okay. So I put the rock and roll music in as well. Wow. And I'm really excited to see how they do it. Is there, is there something that is gained from the use of Zoom or the use of technology that makes it different from it? Is there something that adds to it, do you think? Well, um, yeah, I think I think there is. Uh, I mean, the Zoom thing came in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm so cheap. Talk about a cheap guy. When the Zoom thing came in, when the witch said, uh, when, somebody, when the witch said, well, look, no, somebody says to the witch, how are we going to get there? And she says... Well, I'm a witch, and I'd normally go by broom. Oh. <laughs> Everyone's doing Zoom, and that's that brought in, you know. Uh, and as soon as I thought that of that line, I thought, yeah, yeah, lovely. Because there's one cast member who's very, very um, beloved to everyone in North Wales. As soon as I say this, it gives it away completely. But um, who uh, can't do it because his partner's having to shield. Um, okay. So. So I thought, well, he, he will do it, but there'll be another way that we can find him to do it. So that's all I can say at that point. <laughs> okay, well, I hope it goes fantastically well. Um, the one, uh, we're not going to have time to cover everything, but like, I wanted to ask you about the recovery, how we, how we get back to making work in a traditional sense, so how we get the industry back running, and and what would you like 
to be done? What, as an artist, what would you like to see in the next couple of months from both the Welsh government and the UK government in regards well, to that? I think the, I think the British government done enough and I think that they think they've gone more than they should have but you know it just goes to show that um, artists in in, um, in this country you know um, artists and performers of all kinds um, I don't think they're, they're showing any level of respect compared to somewhere like France and Germany you know when France and Germany decided that they couldn't um, keep the theatres open they made sure that everyone in the arts had a living wage. Uh, and they've done that. that for... France have done it for two years. Well. Um, uh, or, or until the pandemic eventually subsides, you know. Um, here, everything that Richie Sunak did for the self-employed and the freelancers almost seemed to be begrudging, you know. Mm. Um, he would announce help for the employed and then everyone would go, well, what about the self-employed? There was no mention of it, and then two weeks later he'd go, and now the self-employed. Yeah. And he did this thing with second um, announcement as well. You know, no mention of the self-employed. And then you know he was saying, now we're going to give the self-employed twenty um, percent of what uh, the you know the past year three earnings um, is going to be. Well, who can live on that? You know, um, this is how I earn my living. You know, this is what I do for a living. Who can live on that? And now he's agreed to go up to 40%. I, of course I recognise with the government there isn't a limitless amount of money. There genuinely isn't. Um, but this vaccine that they're all talking about, you know, um, I, I, I hope I'm wrong in this, but I can't see it being this side of the year, um, no. if at all. And I don't know when it'll be next year. But I think what they've got to do is, especially in terms of theatres and cinemas and all concert halls and venues and stuff like that, all these things that Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, and, and God bless him, because he's been amazing during this pandemic, mm. trialling all these things that he can, the spray thing that goes on you to make sure that you're completely um, yeah. without anything on your clothes, that, you know, COVID on your clothes and stuff like that, the temperature thing, all these... He's trialling all these things, and what they need the government to do at, uh, at the moment is, in the same way as they did eat out to help out, yes. I think they need to do, and it's not me coming up with this expression, because believe me, <laughs> it's such a good expression, I would have sung it from the rooftops, um, but I think they need to do seat out to help out as well. Oh. They need to, yes. um, you know, in the same way as they subsidised the restaurants they need to subsidize the theaters they they need to get them open definitely um, because it, you know this this business brings in billions in revenue so when somebody like rishi sunak says well you know they should all just consider retraining i think to myself you bloody go and retrain is, is there something in the fact that a lot of people the majority of people maybe who work in the arts are left-leaning liberal people who would generally would not vote for this Conservative government? Is there something in that? Is it politicised? Do you um, think? I mean, I would have never voted for um, Boris Johnson. Uh, I would have never voted for Boris Johnson. Never in a month of Sundays. As a politician, I would have never voted for him. Mm -hmm. Let alone party-wise. 
But the way that I vote, I mean, I think you're quite right that there is quite a lot of left-leaning liberals in the arts. I think you're absolutely right. But the way that I vote is that I vote based on my local MP. And for years and years and years, our local MP, yours is in. Um, you're in East Batalba, aren't you? Yes, yeah, so my MP is Kinnock. Stephen Kinnock. Oh, Stephen Kinnock's yours, right. So Christina Reese is, is ours. Yeah. But for years and years and years, ours was Peter Hayne. Yeah. Now, I, I think that Peter Hayne is the greatest Prime Minister we never had. <laughs> I think he's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and and he, he's, someone like him deserves to be a Lord because I think he's absolutely outstanding. So <clears throat> I vote based on the strength of my local MP. I think Christina Reese does a really good job. Jeremy Miles, my AM, I think he does a sterling mm. job, a really excellent job. Um, but yes, I suppose, you know, to a certain extent, there is a lot of left-leaning, and I suppose I've never voted um, anything other than Labour, apart from one year um, when I was disappointed by um, Blair, and I decided to give the Liberal Democrats uh, a try. And um, lo and behold, what did I do? I, voted, I ended up voting in a Conservative Lib Dem coalition. Uh, coalition. And, you know, I, I really regret that. But also, I lived through the minor strike. You know, right. I was yeah. old. I was twelve. But I lived through the minor strike, and a lot of my families were were um, were miners, and I worked on the mines in one shape or form. And you know, the Conservative government, Thatcher, but the Conservative government then really did, for me, blot their copybook, and sh yeah. they did really show the ruthlessness of what they what they what they are and what they can be. All this stuff at the moment with Boris Johnson and Mark Marcus Rashford, thank God for him. You know, yeah, the free school meals and stuff like that. Don't let a child go hungry. Just don't let it happen. But in the grand scheme of things, what he's doing is great. But that free school meals thing is a sideshow, you know. That is to distract people and, you know, heighten people's emotions, which takes their attention away from what this government is doing on COVID. It's a distraction. absolutely bang on the money. I think you're bang on the money. Because actually, at the height of um, the recent COVID spike, what did they start talking about all of a sudden? Brexit. Yeah. I haven't heard about that for bloody ages. No, I know. I, I thought it had gone. And um, now, and you know, all the Europeans are being difficult. Well... We've, we've all got our difficulties at the moment, and there's a big one that begins with C that we're not going to open unless the country, unless. And I do know that at some point, all this money and all this billions and billions of pounds mm. that um, they're spending, I know we're going to have to pay for it yeah. soon as well. So there's going to be um, VAT increases, there's going to be um, income um, uh, tax. Um, yeah. uh, it's, it's got to be because otherwise the country is going to be in a bad bad way but they're going to have to really look carefully how they're going to do it because otherwise they're out we'll just have to see what, what happens I just think their base is so hardened over the Brexit thing that they'll win I, I think Boris is going to go before the end of next year but I think the Tories are in the long haul but that's too far oh god I hope not. I hope not.
that's, but, that, you know, listen, that's, if that's the way people vote, uh, I am a Democrat and mm. I accept their decision. Yeah, that's all you can do, I suppose. Oh, I am Democratic. <laughs> the, the last that, thing... That gave, that, gave out, that gave my way of uh, wanting to <laughs> vote an American there. <laughs> <laughs> the the last thing I wanted to ask you is how I finish every episode of this. Um, what advice would you give to someone, maybe someone like me who's just starting out in the industry, or or what advice do you wish that you had been given when you were just starting out? You know what? Um, you I think you're aware of this. Uh, you're aware that we lost a child called Harry. Mm. And yeah. I think the greatest two pieces of advice that um, could have ever come um, for me, um, I wish I'd learnt them an easier way, obviously. Um, but Harry wore odd socks, so everyone knows enough for the odd socks. And I'd say, so I would say, never be afraid of being different. And that's, I wear odd socks every single day now. And I tell you the, the bravery it gives me think you know what never be afraid yeah. never be afraid to be different because different is what you are do you, know, do you understand what I mean yeah embrace who you are absolutely embrace who you are and the other thing is one of Harry's favorite cartoons was Finding Nemo yeah he loved absolutely loved it and my other sort of mantra from that now during hard times or during good times or whatever yeah. it is is I take from Dory and that is just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Keep going. And just keep going. Whatever life throws at you. Just got to keep, keep on going. going. You've got to keep going. And you know, if you're going into this business, you're going into a very, very, very hard business. Just keep going. And don't let anyone say to you, you can't do that. Stand up for your individualism. Yeah. Stand up for it. And people, people will try and put you in boxes. People will try and categorise you in a certain way. Yeah. You just gotta stand up for, for who you are and what you what you want to do. I guess. Yeah. And so my advice is wear your odd socks and just keep swimming. Thank you so much, Christian. It's been awesome talking to you. Yeah. It's been lovely, Kieran. It's nice to spend some time with you. I always feel like great. it's fleeting. I, yeah, I agree. I just, especially because of this lockdown, no one's seen each other. Uh, but I will catch you on the next episode of In Lockdown with, where my guest will be Guy O'Donnell. But until then, it's bye oh, for I me. love Guy. I love Guy. I, 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 I will. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> oh, lovely. You know the play that you saw? I think you can see it, um, Peggy's song. Yeah. His wife wrote it. Kath Chandler. Kath Chandler wrote it. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's a small world, no. I'm telling you. I'll take it. It's a lot of leather to get round it, but it's a small world. <laughs> and uh, on that note, again, it's uh, bye for me and bye from Christian. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. 
If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.